0: Monday, December 4th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 141 of the 5049 podcast. Thank you for joining us for another conversation, another conversation about music, about creativity, about uh, getting the work done. Today uh, on the show... I am delighted to have one of my favorite musicians around, uh, an artist whose music I I listen to all the time, um, someone from whom I've drawn a lot of uh, inspiration in the past few years. And that artist is Oren Mbarchi. Before we get into it, before we get started uh, with the conversation with Oren, I'm going to just put it out there one last time because tomorrow night, December 5th, I'll be at Roulette in downtown Brooklyn, uh, presenting my last show of the year. And it's a big one for me. It's a piece that I wrote for four clarinets and two percussionists. It's called Sistema Munditotius, and it's happening tomorrow night. If you're around and uh, you want to come out and hear some music, I would love to see you. This is a big show for me. Uh, I think I've talked about it quite enough in the last couple of weeks. Uh, But just one last reminder. Tomorrow night, Sistema Mundi Totius. Roulette, downtown Brooklyn. I also want to uh, remind you that if you guys are enjoying this show, please do one of two things or both of these things. Please rate and review it uh, and subscribe to it in iTunes, and then please consider going to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash 5049podcast, and becoming a monthly donor. It helps quite a lot. All right, that's enough of that. Um, Today on the show, Oren and Barchi. As I just said a second ago, um, Oren's music uh, in the past, uh, I don't know, 10 years has really had an impact on me. My first encounter with Oren uh I saw him play the first show I ever went to at Tonic back in 2001. It was a Zorn improv night. It was the first time I'd ever seen Zorn live. Uh, it, it, needless to say, it was a show that left a big imprint on me, and, and Oren was there playing guitar, and he stood out to me for a, a number of reasons. Uh, he did not play like the other musicians. Um, typically I think at those improv nights where people play in small ad hoc groups for, you know, five to 10 minutes at a time, there's, I think, a temptation, uh, to play a lot, to play very busy, to play with lots of fanfare. Um, and Aaron that night struck me because he was doing none of those things. He was playing with a lot of patience, a lot of reserve. And I didn't really check in with his music until, until later, um, but orrin has got, you know, an incredibly vast catalog of recorded music and, and, and output. He's a guitar player. He's an electronic musician. He's, he's a producer. Um, all of his records, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had Randall Dunn on the program and uh, something that I talked about in the intro to that show as well as my conversation with Randall is this desire, this need, uh, this impulse to make records at the highest level of record making possible to you. That doesn't mean that you always have to book the studio, uh, you know, at the Hit Factory or something, but but really putting a lot of emphasis on the sonic character of, of your recordings. Uh, and Oren certainly does that. Um, we talk about that a bit today. Um, there's there's a very refined aesthetic to what Oren does, um, and that's something that's been very appealing to me. Uh, another thing that's been very appealing to me is, and you know, we talk about it a bit today, is I don't know what I'm listening to when I listen to Oren's music. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, you just heard at the top of the program there was a drum set. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of really beautiful ambient sounds that, you know, if, if, if you're not looking at him while he's doing it, you don't know what's making these sounds. And that's certainly something that I appreciate, um, if only for the fact that it removes a, a sense of context for me. You know, you, when, when you listen when you're listening to a piece of music and you have no idea how it's being created, I think you listen differently. Um, and, and, you know, on top of that, or even before that, I should say, the music is just very evocative. It's very sensual. Um, it's very easy and, and inviting to get lost in. A lot of his pieces, uh, you know, are, are of a, a longer, more considerable length. Um, and, and you, you know, at times it's not really clear where they started or where they began. And he's got a very interesting way of, of manipulating time. As far as collaborations go, uh, some of you may know him from his work with the band Sun. Son with Steve O'Malley and Greg Anderson. Some of you may know him from his band Flem from a thousand years ago. Uh, his 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 first band with Robbie Avanim. He's 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 an active guy. He's always touring. I didn't realize this, but when he you know when he came to my house, uh, we went out to eat afterwards, and he mentioned to me that he hadn't been back home to Australia in something like a year. He's just been on tour. It's kind of crazy. I really, really love all of uh, Orin's music a lot, and and it's it's funny for me. I actually have this tradition now. Um, I've spoken about this before. You know, I go to Amoeba Records in Hollywood uh, at least once a year, usually with a pretty big bag of money that I'm willing to part with uh, to you know pick up some choice stuff. And I, I, this must have started in 2008. I always buy a new Orin and record at Amoeba Records in Hollywood. You know, he puts out enough stuff that I, I I have this tradition. I know there's going to be something in his bin that you know I that is new that I haven't heard. Um, and and you know, if I were to recommend some of Orange Records to you guys that I think you should check out, I would say uh, and the Pendulum's embrace is pretty amazing. I would say that Audience of One is spectacular. I would say Sagittarian Domain is off the charts. These are these are records I listen to a lot. Um, people ask me, you know, what do you listen to? This is stuff that I have going around my house pretty frequently. On top of it, Oren's a great guy. This was the first time we ever talked, and he's just a really sweet, very thoughtful, very um, engaging person. If you want to find out more about Oren, go to orenandbarchie.com. orenandbarchie.com. There's a lot to, to, to dip into. And um, check out the past episodes of the 5049 Podcast. This is the 141st episode. There's a lot of stuff. Um, Go to the archive. uh, Check it out. There's a lot of people there that if you're interested in Orrin's music, you might be interested in. Uh, J.G. Thurwell, Trace Bruins, um, Randall Dunn, who I just mentioned. There's a a lot of good stuff. And that's it. Um, If you guys are around tomorrow, come out to Roulette. And uh, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Orrin and Margie. Yeah, actually,
1: yeah. So, did you? You've spent a lot of time in New York. I used to live here in the late '80s. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, kind of um, from around '88 until '92, '93. Really? Yeah. Doing music on, stuff. On again, off. Actually, just going to gigs and buying records. And, yeah. Yeah. And I met John. Um, Stephanie Stone introduced us. You knew Stephanie. Yeah, because both of them, the Stones were every gig I went to. They were in the front, and I was sitting with them. Every, yep. and we just got to know each other from going to gigs. I
0: didn't know you had that connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I, and I was it was weird. Yeah, I was studying in a in a yeshiva at the time because really, I was, yeah, my family aren't religious at all. You're from you're born and raised in Australia. Yep, yeah, 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 but I was uh, kind of like in my teens listening to John Coltrane and Impulse stuff and and. Reading it at the same time, and it just turned into this crazy. So I just had this conversation a couple of years ago with Jim Thurwell. Mm-hmm. and I he, saw him last night. Yeah, he's a little bit older, I think, yeah. than you. But he, yeah. um,
0: you know, he he was telling me about being a young person in Australia in the seventies you know, and eighties. Yep. That have you know finding stuff that was from the United States, whether it was jazz or mm-hmm. underground music, was like you know finding something from outer space. It was impossible.
1: It was tough. I mean. I got most of my stuff from just mail ordering, from um, uh, RRR records Uh It was still around, and forced exposure at the time, forced exposure was just, you'd get like a photocopy sheet in the mail, um, (laughs) and you'd look at it, and it was exciting because, you know, I didn't know what, you didn't know what you were going to get. There'd be like a two-sentence description of something, and you just order it, and then two weeks later, all this stuff would arrive, and you'd sort of connect the dots, and that's how I found out about stuff. Did you? But how did you zero in on Coltrane specifically? Um, jazz was. Uh, I mean, I had a lot of access to that stuff. I mm. could after school I would take Are you from my, Melbourne, or? from Sydney originally. Sydney? Yeah, I'd take my lunch money and go to the used record stores, and you could find FMP records for five bucks really? or Shandar record. Like, so I was buying like Isla and Cecil Taylor records um, when I was fifteen, super cheap, so I could. I had access to a lot of that stuff and then You got into that stuff before getting into more conventional jazz? Um I kinda went straight to I was really into Hendrix when I was super young and yeah. and and I was a drummer and I was into Mitch Mitchell and I, I, I heard oh he was influenced by this guy called Elvin Jones. Right. So <laughs> I thought I'll check out Elvin Jones and then I read a biography on Hendrix saying that he was really into John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. Yeah. So I went into a record store and Found a Coltrane Impulse record, and then I looked at the drummer, it was Elvin Jones. I was 14, I was like, Oh wow, everything's yeah. here! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I bought it and then became super obsessed and sold all of my rock records, um, and just bought anything on Impulse and you know that kind of thing. Yeah, and then I bought all the rock records back later, of yeah. course. Yeah, <laughs> so I got into, yeah, and that sort of started with free jazz and a lot of, um a lot of fusion and a lot of ecm stuff too yeah yeah
0: yeah there's a lot of us that i feel like kind of go backwards with that stuff mm-hmm. like the first stuff i got into was henry or i'm sorry um coltrane yep. eiler pharaoh yep. yep and it took many many years before i began to really love and appreciate like stuff like lester young yep uh which is really the stuff that i listen to
1: uh-huh. with much, with most regularity now yep yep i love it all like it's all great to me and yeah inspiring so did you your parents aren't religious not at all no, 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 no. It was your choice to go to. Yishu, it was like bro. a weird rebellion thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. It was like this weird. Like I just went against what, the, you know, they they were quite, um, pretty open people, and and uh, we had a really, it was fun, uh, like a fun way to grow up, fun family. I mean, but, I don't even
0: know that there's Jews. I-, I didn't even know there were Jews in Australia. Oh, there's loads, loads. Where'd they come
1: from? Um, most of them. Well, most of the Sydney community would be. From Hungary, uh-huh. and most of the Melbourne community would be from Poland. Okay, but my family is actually Middle Eastern Jew- Jewish, like Sephardi uh, Yeah, as actually Mizrahi, Mizrahi, the real, yeah, Jew- yeah, 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 yeah. So iraq and uh yeah persia and that kind of area yeah, yeah which yeah. is my family yeah so i grew up with a lot of you know um fum in the in the house and a lot of my all everyone spoke arabic and stuff. really yeah
0: did, did, and you didn't learn hebrew growing up you weren't by Mitzvah or of I, that did, I did
1: i did i was um i went to a jewish school actually and yeah and not not a religious school but yeah jewish school yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's weird i just I, I can't even i
0: mean you know i'm showing a lot of my ignorance right now but mm-hmm. my mom actually lives in australia now oh right um interesting but i i just i guess i didn't even know there was much of like an
1: orthodox community there there is yeah yeah but i was like this weirdo <laughs> in my dormitory i had a drum kit and i would play like weird free jazz records <laughs> and they tolerated me you know <laughs> and, but and that- it was kind of like as soon as i was able to I, I wanted to come to new york and i had an ulterior motive because i wanted to go to gigs and buy uh-huh. records so i would study in brooklyn during the day and as soon as I, at nine thirty at night i could leave and and i would come to manhattan and go to gigs and, and we're talking that. about like hasidic community oh yeah like sat mars no no Lubavitch. Lubavitch, yeah mm-hmm. they're a little more chill i think they are um yeah. but they were okay with you engaging in the secular world in that way they were kind of okay i think you know they sort of tolerated me because I was this weirdo who wasn't religious originally. And, right. you know, and uh, I would kind of do my own thing and then come back. And it was a really, for a while, it was an interesting existence because it was pretty, you know, you'd study from 7.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night, um, six days a week. And then I would go and hear all this weird music um, at night and buy records and yeah. stuff. So, it was a really, for a while, it was just a really stimulating... Way to live, and but, um, what, what were you initially
0: attracted to in this
1: this town?wood study It was more the more the mystical stuff yeah. that was that I was attracted to. But I was like sixteen, you know, but seventeen. I, and that's even more kind of startling. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I had, you know, I had a pretty <laughs> limited awareness of things at age sixteen. <laughs> I guess I was I don't know searching for meaning or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. It I, I was kind of I kind of did that for five. Five or six years, maybe in Brooklyn, New York, kind of all over the world, but mostly in New York. And um, eventually, it was just a difficult juggling act, sort sure. of, sort of having this weird double life where I spoke to spoke to the community in a certain way, and I didn't bother talking about the music thing because it just they wouldn't have they wouldn't get it, so there was right. no point, and it was just this weird. That's weird. Yeah, they did to an extent, but it was just this weird thing where i wasn't really connecting you know you want to connect with people on all levels so right so um eventually i stopped yeah and you were going to these shows with titi and yeah the black I, and all I, maybe that. i had like a, a beret on or something <laughs> 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 but it was funny like i became friends with with um this this black dude from bed stuy and and who lived like literally probably a few blocks from where i lived uh-huh. and we, we would just go to gigs show buddies yeah, we'd yeah. go to gigs together. He must. We must have looked really weird. These it two. must have, yeah, yeah. You're going to a like knitting factory? Yeah. And... The old knitting factory. Yeah. Um, and a lot of jazz gigs, too. Like, you know, I was really lucky to see, you know, Tony Williams and, oh and Miles. I actually saw Miles play in a club. Really? Um, yeah. And loads of Cecil Taylor gigs. And yeah, I saw a lot of amazing stuff. How was it
0: when he saw Miles? He must have been doing like time after time and stuff like that.
1: <laughs> it was kind of maybe even after that era yeah but but actually it was really good the band was really great sure. yeah
0: yeah there's something i i you know actually the f- ice the first time i went to i think it was the first time i saw you play at tonic mm-hmm. in 2001 at a Zorn improv night
1: oh okay it was like
0: short maybe a month or two before september 11th
1: yeah exactly exactly um, mm-hmm.
0: that was one of my first experiences of like i want to be in new york i want to play right. music i want to hear this music and that was the first Zorn gig I ever went to. Wow. That's uh, really
1: funny. It left a big imprint on me. Huh. Yeah, that was interesting because my playing had changed a lot because I worked with John in the 90s. And then, uh, you know, around that time, I was working with Keith Rowe and, and right. I had records out Very on, different approach. on Touch. And my whole approach was really changing. And it was kind of jarring to come back <sighs> to New York and play. Uh, in that kind of downtown uh, improvisation right. thing, L- very active. Musical yeah, events. and I, I, I was being really. I just remember my mindset, and I was being really stubborn and huh. not playing unless I felt that I needed to. And right. I don't think it it jarred. <laughs> it might have jarred a little bit, <laughs> but it all's good now.
0: But when you were going <laughs> to those gigs as like a Yeshiva student,
1: mm-hmm. um, you weren't playing music with people. I was uh, actually playing weird. With a lot of weird, uh, there was this weird fringe thing in in the in the yeshiva where there was two dudes that I used to play with. I have no idea where they are now. Uh-huh. And they were, one was this um, seven foot tall bass player who was yeah. absolutely phenomenal, American guy, and uh, he was just yeah incredible. We used to just do these weird, just have these weird sessions together and this French kind of noise guitar player both of them were religious uh-huh. I have no idea where they are now but I do remember that the bass player decided to learn piano and three weeks later he was Red Rodney's piano player and he just was touring around the world what? or something with him I've yeah and I lost touch with these guys yeah. so I used to we used to do that but it was more about yeah going to as many gigs as possible listening as much as possible yeah. and soaking it up yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think about
0: I have like a very similar period of time in my life and I was always was very always I'd always been very shy. Um mm-hmm. I still am.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'd go to Tonic four or five nights a week when I first moved to New York yep. and yep. and just I mean I loaded it. I would sometimes go to three shows on a night. Mm-hmm. Um too shy to talk to anyone, too shy to you know, ask people to play. But yeah. when I think about that time, it's like maybe my favorite period
1: of my yeah, life. Yeah, it's super important. And then I, I would kind of go back to Australia when my money ran out. And do do gigs there, you know, and that's like, you know, I was sort of doing gigs from the age of eighteen or so in Australia yeah. with older free jazz musicians and and weird improv people when you when you would go back to australia was there this thing of like oh here's this guy who's gone and made it in new york not really no <laughs> that happened later yeah <laughs> and when that happens like no one wants no one wants to talk to you anymore or something oh because yeah he's just a new york guy yeah, he's just he's full of himself. just a dick yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> i get that when i go on tour man uh-huh.
0: people still kind of hang on to that and
1: right I, it's really uh i don't know yeah but eventually i saw um In 91 or 92, I saw KG Heino play, um, and I was always interested in guitar and I was sort of interested in electronics from a really young age Uh and effect pedals and things like that. And, um, yeah, I saw him play for the first time at the old knitting factory and, uh, it absolutely kind of changed everything Mm -hmm. for me. And I decided when I came back to Australia, I booked a gig playing guitar. I had this, I found a guitar in a rehearsal room and, uh, and the owner eventually said, just take it. And uh, I used to use it as part of the drum kit as this weird, I don't know, thing, sure. sounding board or whatever. And um, yeah, I booked this gig playing guitar. I really didn't know anything about <laughs> it, but I kind of knew what I liked or something. Sure. And yeah, just jumped in and did that. And everyone thought I was insane.
0: To, and, to, to attempt something like that. Yeah, yeah. And
1: then it sort of, I just started doing it from that point onwards. This is how old? uh 23 22 yeah mm-hmm. i mean you you had you feel like you had an idea of sound production so i you know from from a young age my my grandfather had this um weird store that had all sorts of junk like used junk and yeah. he had a lot of a lot of records uh which i was really he would let me take whatever i wanted and listen to it and return it or whatever but he had a lot of effect pedals and real to reel machines and oh, things like that so i could I'd take them and make these really kind of shitty, crude music concrete, you know, things at home. And I had a double tape recorder and would use that, you know, like record the same thing on two tapes and get flanging and, you know, phasing and delays and things like that. And I kind of learned a lot just from fooling around with it. And so, effect pedals and things like that were always, you know, in the background. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And then I sort of embraced that much more when i started playing guitar and you know discovering japanese noise and things like right. that did yeah. you and did you ever take any formal lessons or no, study no no i maybe i had it when i was young some actually i had a couple of some piano lessons for about a year when i was you know 8 or sure. something and then i did a few drum lessons but no, no one wanted to teach me because I was left-handed, and that was, you know, <laughs> huh. too difficult. Like one teacher said, you know, you got to switch to right-handed if you want me to teach you. And I said, no, you know, right. Yeah. So. And and do you play left-handed guitar now? Are you' strong with your left hand. I do. Yeah. You know, is left-handed.
0: I didn't know that. And he plays righty. Huh. And his take on it was sort of like, well, all my dexterity is on the fretboard, so hmm. let me put my good hand there.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of left-handed musicians that play right-handed. Yeah. Yeah. But there's something about like I am not I have
0: you know taken lessons here and there um, but I had you know what you what you described sounded very similar to my own experience which mm. is I got a four track when I was I think 12 or 13 yep um, and very quickly began you know making sound collages uh, even before that you know boombox you know going side A to exactly. side B exactly. and I still remember and this is a feeling that I chase when I'm making music and I'm working on stuff today you know, I didn't know any better. I would think I discovered these techniques, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know. And I remember the first time I recorded two of my own voice, and I played it for my brother. I was like, "Hey, why don't you to check this out, man?" And he
1: was like, "What the fuck is that?" Nice, nice. But that it's feeling great. of discovery, absolutely. That's what you want. That's what you want when you make music, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't want to understand what's going on. What things that I love is when I actually don't understand what's happening, and it's kind of baffling, and I'm really attracted. To things that are like that and i actually don't you know i'm not the kind of guy to walk up to someone's setup and look at everything sure. they, they're using i don't really want to know it sort it. of demystifies it yeah, yeah yeah i like the mystery yeah
0: I've, i mean that's something that's attracted me to a lot of your music um is when i listen to the records i mean one they're great sounding records and the music's you know very uh i love the music mm, but you. i also have no idea what's going on Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the, like, the, the you know, the programmed rhythmic stuff is a little easier to, sure. to pinpoint, but yep. a lot of the sounds, I have no idea what it is. Yep, yep. Um, and it, it does something to your listening. It, it, it sort of, like, removes um, context in a way. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> when, you, when you saw um, I Know That Night, mm-hmm. you must have been familiar with him previous to that. I wasn't, and not many people really knew about his stuff. Like, mm-hmm. he had a few releases... Um, yeah, well, he had a couple you know the release in the 80s, but PSF records had just sort of started so and it wasn't distributed very well, especially in Australia, like forget it, you know, sure. and uh, I remember, yeah, I was just like, w- who is this person? and I was really confused, like, is this good? Is this bad like what <laughs> that's the best? yeah, what is going on here? Yeah instead of just going, yeah, that was a cool gig or you know yeah so um as soon as I got home. I just investigated his stuff and mail-ordered stuff from Japan, and it was really difficult to get a hold of that this, stuff. You were living in New York at the time? I was living in Australia. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I met this dude at a gig who had one kg Haino CD, and we became best friends, and, you know, it was... A Over Haino? Yeah, I was just just trying to find this stuff was really challenging yeah but but so exciting when you actually get it you know you really listen to it and yeah cherish it i don't know if there's if if collectors are still being born honestly mm. I,
0: I i think like you know you could see i like to have shit around me yeah um and yep. a lot of it is like you know you what exactly what you just described you develop this real uh, affinity and you know almost obsession yeah with tracking things down yep. and then cherishing them mm-hmm um, I've still
1: got it now. Actually, you still have it. Oh yeah, it's a disease. <laughs> so when you go on tour, you come home with loads of shit. I do, I do, and I'm always, you know, sending packages home. And yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> but you know, I have to say, I the first time I saw Hino live, I had sort
0: of an awareness of who he was and what he did, but I wasn't very familiar with his music. I, yep. I kind of knew what to expect. Yep but one thing that really struck me is as cathartic as his stuff can be mm-hmm. as like really intense as it can be mm-hmm. he maintains a real level of clarity yep, yep. It, it never feels like like a like a mush
1: mm-hmm. he really and also working with him which i'm really fortunate to have been doing for like the last 10 years now yeah. quite intensely yeah he he always gives gives it like you know and i'm not talking about being loud or, you know, noisy or whatever. But he just really throws himself into whatever's happening. And there's this interesting thing when you're playing with him where, you know, this thing always happens where when we're playing, if I start to think as I'm playing, wow, this is... What's happening right now is so amazing. It's so special. Uh If I have that thought, he will change what's happening instantly. (laughs) He, he, He intuits it. Yeah. It's almost like he just... He subverts himself or subverts what's going on to keep things moving all the time. Even if it's completely clumsy and, and for the next ten minutes it's just like a mess. He just he's constantly doing that because it's almost like pushing himself out of the his comfort zone. Sure. And and whoever's working, you know, with him too. I mean has
0: that taken some getting used to for you?
1: Um I don't know, like I, I kind of know his language and I kind of know It's almost like I want to, like Jim O'Rourke said, you know, uh, said in an interview about our trio, that our role is almost like, you know, on a movie set and we're, you know, doing the lighting and sort of setting up the scene to work almost. And and that's kind of the approach that I like to take because I love what he does. Yeah. But, but yeah it's always there's always surprises always every time
0: so i had this is like an esoteric argument i had with a friend um Mm -hmm. i played on a record several years ago and i played a solo and this friend of mine the record you know he's really into making tight records having things you know he's really really great at presenting sound Yep. and you can hear there's a part as i'm figuring out what i'm doing you know Mm -hmm. and it's like it's not that hip you know yeah but then when i get it going the argument that we had is he just wanted to snip off the first part. Right. And my argument was, no, leave it
1: in, because it's so much more satisfying it's, to hear it come together. That's a really interesting thought, because that's totally applicable to, to the Hino stuff. Yeah. And I was talking to Spencer, Spencer Yeh, because um, he has a lot of those records that we've done, as a tri- the trio with Jim and Hino, And it's kind of like, yeah, you have to go through all this stuff to get to this point, you know, where, right. where it just sort of comes together. And... um it makes, the, it makes it more special, you know, if you sort of go... And a lot of times when you see him play, even if he's playing solo or whatever, you have to sort of persevere with this thing that uh-huh. slowly comes together and, and it feels like a mess or, or like he's flailing about or whatever. And it's more satisfying. It way. is. Yeah. Do you feel that way as a listener? I do. Yeah, I do. There's one... One of our records, I'm, because uh, I do all the mixing, and mm-hmm. there's one record where it's more concise, and it's almost like, uh, you know, almost like a pop, not sure. a pop record, but, and that has its place too, but, yeah. but I think there's something about these long, drawn out, pieces that, where the magic happens in a way. It is where it with happens. Him. Yeah. And I, know, it's you
0: know, I know a lot of great improvisers who, you know, and I'm talking like improvisers. You know, yep. That's really what they, you know, they're spending their life. You know, devoting themselves to it. like mm-hmm. Roscoe Mitchell, if you play with him,, yep. Yep. if you imitate what he does, yep. he'll yell at you. okay. He'll say, do something else. yeah you know? mm-hmm. Frith, when he plays, he uh, reconfigures his pedals every night. So there's like this element of of surprise and having to you know deal with the situation. And it certainly um, can challenge conventional ideas about music making. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it's a, it's it's for me it's an ongoing challenge. I get I find myself sometimes when I'm playing with people resorting to things that i know work yep, yep and i hate myself for
1: doing it sure <laughs> yeah it's good to to somehow keep things alive you know yeah and maybe subverting what you do or you know the form or whatever is is the way to go yeah so
0: once you heard high you said that's it i'm playing guitar yeah pretty much yeah
1: yeah and i kind of did exclusively for for a number of years and and uh that's kind of when my stuff started coming together in a way when yeah I made that decision did you did you feel like um that
0: because you'd already been working on music with a different instrument did you yep. feel like more prepared to sit down with a new instrument and
1: kind of approach it yeah in a way it was i was lucky because i didn't have the conventional training and Mm. i i just sort of looked at it in a a different way and uh it was almost like a sound i don't know um but but at the same time maybe from listening to to loads and loads of records and and playing uh drums um there was there was sort of decisions that i could make on what i wanted to do and what i didn't want to do you Mm -hmm. know um from that experience previous experience but of course, you know, it took a while. Like, um, I honestly didn't really know what I was doing. And and I met I met Zorn. Uh, Stephanie Stone introduced us in 92, I think. And we had this really, really fun conversation about records and uh-huh. this and that. And he must have been a little like, who is this person? Because I, I look like a Hasid. Sure. And we were talking about Harry Parch and Chelsea and... <laughs> Right. And Napalm Death and all this stuff. All the greats. And um, uh, a year later in 93, it was his 40th birthday and there was this thing happening at the knitting factory and I faxed him because in those <laughs> days, that's what you did. Yep. And from Australia and, and um, he saying, oh, you know, me and my friend are thinking of coming to, to check it out. And he faxed back immediately and he said, why don't you, why don't you play at it, you know? And he hadn't heard anything mm-hmm. that i did nothing you know mm-hmm. and um i couldn't believe it i was 23 or mm-hmm. and and yeah we we, we came and to new york and and played uh this radical jewish culture night um and then he invited us to do an improv with um improv night with him and frith and Ikaway and this is you and robbie avena exactly Avernay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh yeah I, I i think about that and and a lot of the older uh people that I've worked with, how how amazing and how generous, you know, where they kind of put their reputation on the line to give mm-hmm. someone younger an opportunity, a chance to to do stuff. And that really fired up, you know, my like my trajectory, I guess. Yeah. And, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I I definitely want to kind of remember That that sort of treatment and and keep that in mind because it's really it's really incredible. It's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, I just had a conversation with a younger musician the other day.
0: uh, It was one of these conversations of you know, hey, you know, I'm I'm new to New York. Do you have any advice? And my advice to him, as I give to a lot of uh, people, is just make sure you maintain the respect of your peers. Mm -hmm. Make sure that none of your peers are going to talk shit about you. Yep. Uh, Yep. Everything else can you know flail and fall, but
1: yep. Yeah, I'm really. I'm really into the older, <laughs> the older you know, yeah. artists. And, and I'm very lucky to work with like Alvin Lussier and, and uh, yeah, lots of, you know, a lot, even people like um, I've been working with Manuel Gotching from Asherah Temple and uh-huh. just lots of older people from different uh, areas. And uh, it's the it's, best. It's really, really inspiring. I remember yeah. the first time I played with Zorn, we played a duo mm-hmm. uh, at one
0: of his improv nights. And I closed my eyes and I was hearing the sounds that I was playing interacting with the sound that i've been listening to for a thousand years and i was like and it was it was utterly surreal Mm -hmm. did you as a yeshiva student who was interested in you know crazy music i mean finding your way to zorn's world must have been things must that must have made a lot of sense
1: it did and it was actually before before masada and before kristallnacht and all those releases it was actually way before that and i think i was in a in a car or a taxi or something in new york um and they were playing maybe something from the goddard compilation Uh or one of his collage pieces and i was just like what is this you know and um i went and bought it the next day and i think uh i bought the cobra lp double lp or i can't remember sure and then i just started really maybe the big gun down i just started, you started to realize there there's a whole universe to explore yeah but it was you know there wasn't even that much available i mean there was mm-hmm. um but not like now of course you <laughs> <know>. <laughs> <laughs> but it really opened things you know opened up you know just discovering players too like all the people that he worked with and yeah you could just it was just endless yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. there was i mean when i think about
0: uh, you know, I've, I've since, um, my interests have since changed, but certainly the radical Jewish thing was really important to me at, mm-hmm. a, at a time in my life when I was, you know, 19 or something and figuring things out. Um, I'm, trying, I'm going to try to say this uh, as respectfully as I can. Um, I feel like the records were more interesting in the first phase. Yep. And that record that you and Robbie made, um, the Alter Rebbe's... Nigon, yeah. yeah the, the Kletka Red... Um, album mm-hmm. the self haters mm-hmm. album to me this was stuff i was like i want to interact with that mm-hmm. um, it felt very alive it felt very confrontational yeah it felt very exploratory in a yep. way that uh you
1: know was very enticing to me yep maybe it became more homogenized it or did. something later and i think yeah. even you know john would tell you that yeah um yeah that's not to diss anyone no anything. no no he i mean initially he said hey why don't you guys come and record it in new york and maybe you could use you know, Rebo, or like, mm-hmm. and we we were just like, no, nah, we'll we'll go and do it in Australia. Like, yeah. we really, I don't know, wanted it to be what we do, and 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 not you know, right, not mix it up with the New York thing right. in a way. Have yeah. it be a pure yeah. statement. Yeah, and a lot of it we did, you know, in our rehearsal room, and you know, it's re- a lot of it we did on a four track, and yeah, 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 and it's the sound of two people exploring mm-hmm. without limitation. Yeah, I mean, we had a particular concept in mind which made sense, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was just where we we were at at that point in time. Yeah, but again, like a really fantastic opportunity for two young people in the middle of nowhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and
0: have you from from have you always been involved in the production side of making music?
1: Yeah, I, I mean more and more so I, I love making records obviously I make a lot of records <laughs> but I, I love it's almost like solving a puzzle you know where, uh-huh. where there are all these pieces and, and uh, it's a really for me it's a really pleasurable and torturous experience at yeah. the same time um, because I can't I can't relax until it's complete you know until right. till it sort of comes together but I'm addicted to that feeling when it does come together um mm-hmm. it's really really addictive and and i, I kind of live for those moments yeah yeah
0: and i find that the addiction grows stronger as more and more really great um production materials become accessible
1: yep you know yep. I, just, I just
0: got this Altiverb
1: plug-in right you know and i'm nice. like
0: i'm just you know i'm getting lost in the world of altiverb it's amazing
1: right. okay okay it's weird because with me i don't use any Plugins or anything like that. All um, gear. Well, I I kind of put things together and then I will go to a studio to mix it. Usually, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't want my records to have like a Pro Tools sound or you know. There I is know. a Pro Tools sound. Yeah, I tr- try and stay away from that. And yeah. Um, and I, it's also um, this thing where it gets to a point where I, I've kind of prepped prepped it and it's sort of doing what it's supposed to do, but then. I want to leave it. I want to leave the possibility for when I go to work with an engineer, um, all these other things can happen as well. Mm -hmm. It can go a step further than that. And I can sort of surprise myself a bit or. Yeah. Yeah. So I really. And I love, you know, bouncing ideas off other people too. And there's a few people I love to work with, you know, that kind of get what I'm going for. And yeah, it's fun. Right. When
0: did you move back to Australia? And what Um, was that decision?
1: Well,. I guess what I would do in, in the late 80s, early 90s was I would, you know, save up money in Australia, come to New York, stay for as long as possible, like live off, you know, right. a, a bread roll and, uh, you know, something something else a day mm-hmm. um, just so I could stay for as long as possible, see as many gigs as possible. And then the money would run out. Then I'd go back to Australia, do it, do it o- all over again. So it was like a cycle. And then eventually... Um, I just felt that I could start doing uh, gigs and playing back at home and and trying to, you know, take inspiration from what I was seeing in New York and in Japan because I was going there as well Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, start putting on shows there too. And Robbie and I, you know, we had a festival and and a lot of the stuff that we were seeing inspired us to start trying to do that at home. So, we started bringing a lot of people over from overseas and... and, um,
0: How did you, how did you, how do you mount that?
1: I mean... Um, With our credit cards. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. We had a festival that happened in three different cities um, for about 10 years and almost like a week in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. So three weeks of gigs once a year and and, uh, five things a night. So lots of stuff. Lots of music. And we did it all ourselves. And you were bringing people from all over the world? Yeah. Initially it was more local and then it kind of got bigger and bigger. Really big, actually. Um, yeah, we we had you know we had Panasonic for example, and oh my God. we had 800 people, you know, for that, which was kind of insane. It just yeah. became a really huge thing, and eventually, I just got super burnt out doing it. It's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. Getting anything done is a lot of work. It is. Yeah, but it was really important um, in the sense that uh, a lot of local uh, players got to interact with you know, people doing stuff from overseas and, you know, a lot of projects happen. We encouraged collaborations and things like uh-huh. that. So it really, in a way, it really changed the the scene in Australia. Yeah. And, and uh, now there's loads of experimental festivals in Australia and this and that. Yeah. So it, it was an important kind of milestone. And who were the musicians back in Australia that you <clears throat> were, were working with and connecting with? Um, there were people like Jim Denley and... Uh, he had a project called the machine for making sense um people like tony buck and chris abraham that that kind of scene then there were a lot of um you know weird noise musicians people that built instruments and you know um people we just mixed it up you know yeah uh people in the sort of more composer world and yeah, we just threw it all together. And uh, do you feel like, as someone who does
0: a lot of things, you know, you play a lot of instruments, you tour, you make records. Um, do you see something like that, like mounting a festival and presenting music, as an extension of the music work, or something completely separate?
1: I thought it was an extension, absolutely, um, yeah. because I'm a fan of this stuff, and and if I'm excited about bringing White House to Australia, who have never been, or even the Dead Sea, you know, all these groups that had never been, yeah. Um, yeah i want to turn people onto this stuff and i'm sure a lot of people know about it and they would it would just be a thrill for them to see it so why not yeah try and make it happen yeah, yeah yeah but uh eventually it just got to be too much work it did yeah yeah it just became yeah almost too big and and we'd we'd done we'd, we did it for 10 years you know right that, that was enough i thought yeah did you ever get to see or play with Derek bailey I saw him play many times and, and uh, met him at Tonic actually, uh, and he was lovely, but mm-hmm. never, never played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one of those guys I I, I go back to you know uh, once a year. Yep. You know, I yep. spend
0: a lot of time with his book. I spend a lot of time with his records, and uh, yeah, it's
1: oh. like an oracle. Absolutely, yeah. I love that guy. I really love. I mean, God, I've got loads of Derek Bailey. Yeah. But I, I love the record on Sarik with um, Jamaluddin Takuma and Calvin Weston. It's such a weird record. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. That yeah. Record.
0: But that's like one of those things where it's like, and I've heard people criti- like, criticize that record. Well, it's just Derek Bailey doing his thing over yeah.
1: like an intense rhythm section. Yeah. And yeah. It's really it. it's a really fun record. Yeah. yeah. I love that record. But I love a lot of you know his stuff, of course, like many people. Yeah. Yeah did
0: that free european free improv scene was that a part of your sure sure it still is yeah Yeah,
1: i love a lot of that stuff i kind of love everything (laughs) yeah there's so much music (laughs) there is yeah but i'm fussy as well but yeah but that stuff's really important to me
0: for sure and concurrently were you staying engaged with sort of louder aggressive music based around guitars and
1: yeah i mean you know like uh in the early 90s i i went to japan a lot and and you know, the so-called Japanese scene yeah. was happening and I was really lucky to see a lot of that stuff when it just started in a way and mm-hmm. work with work with Masona and Solmania and people like that um, in the early 90s in Japan. Yeah. And I brought with Robbie, we brought a lot of those people to Australia um, for the first time.
0: So, thinking back on that time, was there, like, I, I was, I played one time with Otomo mm-hmm. and he, he was explaining to me that like where they play in Japan are these tiny little yeah. rooms yeah. and yep. The piece we were playing was this super quiet piece that lasts for an hour, and he was explaining that like the origin of the piece was in the walls in the club were so
1: thin yep. that they had
0: to play that quietly.
1: Yeah, I used to go to that club. Yeah. Um, it was called Offsite, and that was around 2002, 2003. I, was, I lived around the corner, so I was there all the time. And yeah. I played there with, with those guys, with Toshi and Tetsuzi and Otomo and Sachiko. And it was, yeah, the, the, that music evolved purely because there was a neighbor. It was a residential building and, uh, you know, with people on either side of it with really thin walls. And, mm-hmm. you know, everyone had to play quietly. And then it became a language. Right. And then the wire called it Oncure music, you know, and it became a, a thing. And then it influenced people in Berlin. And, sure. But I love stuff like that. I love, yeah. I love how these weird, you know, things evolve like Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath detuning his strings because he had an accident in a factory and he couldn't press down on the strings. Right. So he detuned just to make it easier for him. And then everyone starts playing... Drop D. Yeah, heavier music, you know. Right. I love that sort of thing.
0: Right. Mm. These sort of like happy accidents.
1: Yeah. And that's how, that's how that music, the quiet sort of Japanese uh, electroacoustic stuff. Is that space still there? No. No, yeah. it didn't last very long. Right. Yeah. Yeah. i
0: i i love the origin of spaces mm-hmm. i love um like if you go to roulette yep. you see all the posters on the wall of like schedules from you know the 80s and you see amazing yeah yep. it's just like i i love being in, you know or even like you know we're sitting here in my apartment that's the bridge man yeah. that's it's, the bridge where incredible. sonny
1: rollins did his shit it's yeah that's amazing yeah yeah i love things like that too for yeah sure i think it's part of the collector yeah it's just it's just history you know it's exciting and and. Yeah, just to yeah, you're. I'm a fan, you know, and and uh, I love this stuff. So to see, you know, what happened and all these chance meetings, and you know, I I love also stories like you know AMM in in New York in '68 uh-huh. and uh, Soft Machines lighting, Soft Machines lighting uh, tech guy who did all the weird effects for Soft Machine. Um, was also working you know involved with the experimental music scene in london and he sort of says to them hey there's this amazing guy playing in a club um let's go and christian wolf and amm and going to see hendrix play jam you know right at at the scene club in you know 68 after playing with cage or whatever like earlier in the night mm-hmm. you know I love these things, these weird worlds colliding. Knowing yeah. that they happened. And yeah.
0: I, I've told this story before. I had this weird experience a few years ago. I was at this Christmas party for... Uh, Roulette, Roulette does an annual Christmas party. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of drunk. And, you know, it's a bunch of people, like, talking. There's people, little groups all over the room with people talking. And I look over and I see Christian Wolf drinking a beer and, like, checking his iPhone. <laughs> and it just felt like, wait, this guy's... Like, you know, at the end of The Shining... Yeah. When the bartender tells him, like, you've always been here, <laughs> it was, like, one of those things where, like, he's literally been here. Like, yeah. I mean, there's that picture right there,
1: you know, yeah. of, like, him with the cats. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. The old guys. The it's old guys. Super fun. Yeah. Yeah. I really love, I've been hanging out with Alvin Curran a lot lately, too, and he's... What's that been like? He's so great. He's such a lovely guy and, and full of life and so much energy and... Yeah. Yeah, and then we were in a hotel um, playing at a festival somewhere in France and yeah, I woke up one morning and went downstairs to have breakfast and Alvin calls me over and, you know, he's sitting with MEV mm-hmm. and with John Tilbury and, you know, someone else and, was, you know, and he's sort of eating breakfast with these guys just shooting the shit and then you sort of say to yourself, this is really bizarre, like, right. you know, right. these guys are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's the best. I, I, I pinched myself. I remember one day, um, this
0: was uh, obviously before he passed away, but I was with Zorn. We were doing a meeting in Tompkins Square Park, just like relaxing, talking, yeah. and uh, Lou Reed comes through. Uh-huh. The next thing I know, like we're having this conversation, like a, a conversation that like I, I hold on to because yeah. there's a lot of, and like I it's not lost on me. The moment's not lost on me. Mm-hmm. I sort of pinch myself for a second and I'm like, just shut up. Mm-hmm. Take this, you know, these are like, masters that i'm you know taking information from
1: yep i was lucky to play with Lou reed once too in australia are you serious yeah he it was really weird this um he curated uh this sort of noise night at the opera house with and oh this was not that long ago not that long ago right yeah and uh he had this idea that all of us would set up on the stage at the same time and you know someone would play and then the next person and then the next Uh. person and he, he would play in between um, to allow the sort of changeover thing. And uh, it was a total mess as far as the tech people. They just had no clue sure. how to run this thing. And um, <clears throat> I remember, you know, I sound checked, everything was fine. Then they took my gear off and... I think Melt Banana were playing, (laughs) and I had to to follow Melt Banana. And as Melt Banana were playing, they were dragging my stuff back on the stage Uh in front of the audience. And, you know, I I plug in, and there's this huge, you know, I don't have a signal or or something, and they're still playing, and it's a mess. And so then Lou started playing to sort of seek into what I was doing. And um, I didn't have a signal, and he started. And it was really stressful. There's like a whole lot of people watching and waiting. (laughs) Yeah. And then he started uh, fading out. And I I turned around and went, keep fucking playing. (laughs) (laughs) And then I sort of realized, you just told Lou Reed to to keep keep fucking fucking playing. playing. But he did. Did he smile? (laughs) I don't even know if he heard me. It was so noisy. Yeah. Yeah. But he kept playing. And and he pulled through. And it was fine yeah So yeah. okay so you're not like uh, no, no no it was fine and we had we had we all jammed at the end and yeah it was pretty funny and yeah. i did this radio show with um with him and hal wilner oh actually, yeah yeah which was super fun and i just had my ipod and and um i don't i think i was playing zz top or something and he was just giving me weird looks you Luke. know <laughs> i love zz top yeah me too i really love zz top and then um i just sort of wanted i don't know why i was just i was about to play a fleetwood mac track actually <laughs> and um he walked over and looked down at my ipod and i was about to hit play and then i looked up and i quickly changed it to fushitsusha in the last second <laughs> <laughs> probably a good idea it was it was
0: when did you first start playing with uh steve o'malley and the guys with sun
1: um ooh, 2004 yeah i think yeah how did you encounter those guys Um, That's funny, Uh, I've told this story and Stephen has a number of times, but an album of mine called Grapes from the Estate had Mm -hmm. just come out and he, Stephen was DJing at the, apparently at the, not the LMC festival, CMJ, I don't know. CMJ here in New York. Yes, yeah. he was DJing at that and um, he was blasting the first track, which has a lot of subs. Right. And uh, apparently it caused the um <clears throat> the fire alarms to go off and the sprinklers to go off and and the whole place was evacuated and the fire department came and it was this sort of disaster and the next morning he wrote to me for the first time and said we should work together and that's how <laughs> because, I ended up, because your music was able to yeah to do that and that's how i ended up working with son and and steven yeah yeah is that i mean and, and it seems like you guys come from a similar enough musical appreciation. Um, I mean, he has a metal background and, yeah. and I don't really have a metal background. Ever? Um, no, no. I mean, people huh. assume that, you know. Sure. I mean, I was into a lot of thrash metal and, and a lot of the earache stuff for a while and, um, and of course, a lot of black metal. But but I wouldn't say that I grew up really listening to It's not to your music in your yeah, blood, yeah. I listened to... I guess I grew up listening to to free jazz and and rock music more more so than metal music. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, I guess we both share an interest in all kinds of stuff, so that's what makes it work.
0: But there, I feel like for one place where there's like a real nexus is like um, it's a period of music, and you know, it's like Bitches Brew, it's Sextant by
1: Herbie Hancock, where those records are dark. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, the thing I love about, yeah, the jazz records from that era is the way they weren't afraid to use the studio as an instrument. Right. It was a really brief time where it wasn't this sort of purist jazz thing where you just document what's going on. Uh-huh. Um, I love, you know, that's the way I look at it. You're in the studio, let's use the studio exactly. and, do, and explore. And um, I love that about a lot of a lot of those early 70s records and they sound great as yeah. well. Yeah. And there's yeah. a lot of experimentation... You know, like Ken Scott, who's a great engineer that worked with the Beatles and um, you know, he he was the engineer on a lot of the Mahavishnu records and mm-hmm. and and the drum sounds are insane and mm-hmm. you know. And it's kind of yeah, to me that's a really important facet and that's why I love a lot of those records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they still sound fantastic. Yeah. They just brought vinyl sounds absolutely bananas. Mm-hmm. And no one talks about Tio, you know, um, to we m- talk about to you. Yeah, but he he's so integral and yeah. so important. And again, the experimentation, what he was doing with with looping and editing and sure. and shaping the compositions, you know. And I remember I love the track Go Ahead John. Uh-huh. And especially, you know, he's like panning Jack Higginette from left to right. McLaughlin does a solo and you can in the right channel, you can barely hear the the live sound, but in the left channel you're just hearing a spring reverb of it, yeah. like really loud and just crazy, crazy right. shit. And I remember reading a review in the wire of the Jack Johnson box set and they had that track, Go Ahead John, on there, um, as it happened before all of the post production. And the um the reviewers said something like, Finally we get to hear Go Ahead John the way we were meant to hear it. No, it's not and the I way you like, were meant to hear it. I got so angry, yeah you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Piss off, man. Exactly. <laughs>
0: There's something like, um, I, I, I feel like I've been whining about this all the time, but I wish more uh, improvising musicians. I, it's something I certainly try to do. Um, would treat the record making process uh, in wh- almost like a way a pop or rock musician, yep. would, which is you know moment to moment. Make mixing decisions that yep. really accentuate
1: the ideas and serve the music, mm-hmm. and it's you know ultimately what I think T.O. was doing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I love the the jacko pastorius record word of mouth for example i think that's an amazing amazing record and again crazy crazy experimentation going on there on a lot of the tracks really really bizarre stuff yeah um even though you know it's a beautiful modern jazz record but it's really really ambitious and and that's the way it should be yeah i
0: i started using a lot of subs in my records Mm mm-hmm and you know maybe it's because i overthink things so i started wondering why do i why am i always drawn to this and i think like oh i think it because it helps me to translate my sense of nervousness around playing music okay. <laughs> like a sense of panic you know i like, right. I'll, I'll give you this record that i made with evan parker uh, a couple hmm. years ago cool i mixed it in such a way that like i was trying to kind of convey like that feeling of of like nerves pulsing and like that this is part of the improvised experience right Nice. Like
1: a neurotic improv record. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's the only kind I know how to make. (laughs) Nice. Did you start your own record label?
1: Yeah, yeah. um, (laughs) It's called Black Truffle. Yeah. And yeah, that's why I was a bit late meeting you today because I was just dealing with that stuff. Um, Yeah? Yeah, it's becoming... (laughs) 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 It wasn't meant to... It was meant to be this, initially, uh, so I had stuff to sell at gigs, you know, and now- Just printing your own stuff. Yeah, now it's become this kind of animal. Because you're putting out other people's shit? Because I'm putting out other people's stuff, which I'm really excited about, actually. um, And a lot of uh, archival stuff, too, and a lot of lesser-known artists. Mm -hmm. And it's becoming, it's exciting, but then again, you know, I get 10- emails from italy and russia a day like hey do you want to hear my new thing and so it's really kind of taking over my Mm -hmm. life a little bit but um but um i'm so excited with a lot of the stuff i've put out and a lot of things that i've got coming up which are yeah really exciting actually do you um i think self-releasing is like the
0: most satisfying thing in the whole Mm -hmm. world Mm -hmm. you know you can make a record and have copies in hand like within a couple weeks of the last overdub yep it's it's amazing Uh uh-huh um how do you feel having access to i mean i don't know what your approach has been but has it changed the way you think about um presenting your music to
1: the world well it yeah you just have total control and i can yeah it's you're right i can sort of do something and say, oh, I could put this out in, you know, a month. It's yeah. true, but I'm doing it mostly on vinyl. So, it's not as oh, not as quick and it is a pain in the ass and, yeah. and there's so many variables for everything going wrong. and Vinyl in particular. Yeah, like I did a release with my partner, Chris Cole, uh, which came out this year and I think we had five test pressings until Jesus we could approve God. it and just, yeah. It, you it, just want to give up actually. <laughs> yeah. It becomes so annoying. And I self-released one piece of vinyl and it's like I, I realize that the future is the past you know it's like yep. it's all about vinyl again yeah, but it is. it's
0: it's such a nightmare
1: it is yeah but i'm up to yeah there's 32 releases now and 32 releases. yeah and most of it's vinyl so i'm kind of used to the whole annoying process do you yeah. have a good manufacturing plant yes i just changed actually yeah, yeah because i had so many issues with the previous one yeah I, and uh um, yeah yeah i'm doing an alvin lucier record and, you know, the first side has two guitars that sound like sine waves, uh-huh. hard left, hard right, some in different tones and, you know, cutting that and trying to make it clean and, and yeah. uh, you know, loud almost is difficult. So I think, I think a lot of the plants are just overwhelmed with so much demand and work. That That's part just, of the problem. They're just doing it really quickly and they're not really...
0: Well, especially if you're not, you know, like if if you know you're doing a limited run of say That's 500 it. pieces, you know, you're not priority. Yeah, they're trying yeah. to fulfill an order for a major label.
1: That's it. Yeah. So there's not a there's not the care that there should be. Yeah. Right. So I'm switching manufacturers. Uh, it's an experiment. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's going to be better. Yeah. 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 You like vinyl? Yeah. You love vinyl? Of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I've got thousands of CDs too. Sure. But yeah, but i I grew up with vinyl and and I love the economy as well, like the 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 time, you know, forty minutes or so. Mm-hmm. I just like that way of thinking, mm-hmm. and, and I also like you know a sidelong piece and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: But I mean, touring, man. How do you tour around with that
1: shit? I it's tough, yeah, because I've got so much gear as it is. So a lot of times I'll I'll post stuff to a town that I'm going to be in, and yeah. Try and do it <laughs> like that, yeah. But there's only so much I can bring, yeah.
0: Right. And so tonight you're playing with Lauren Connors.
1: No, that's next week. Tonight, oh. tonight I'm playing with Alvin Lucier again. again. Yeah, it's a two night Alvin Lucier festival. Are these new
0: pieces, or
1: most of them are new pieces or relatively new pieces that he's um, uh, about four or five years ago. Um, someone uh, there was like an Alvin Lucier uh, festival in Glasgow, huh. and um, the curator. Uh, said to Alvin, hey, you know, these two guitar players are going to be there. I was doing stuff with Stephen O'Malley separate to, to Alvin Lucier, And he said, you know, have you ever ever written a guitar piece? And Alvin hadn't written a guitar piece. Hmm. So, he wrote one for us. For you and Stephen specifically? Yeah, called Crisscross, Cross, which we premiered in Glasgow um, four or five years ago. And since then, he's kind of become excited about guitar And he has written more pieces involving guitars uh, with sort of guitars and small ensemble. And then he he emailed me a year or two ago and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of revisiting some of my older pieces for sine waves, but replacing guitars instead Hmm. of the sine waves, which... I was like, great, but also going, holy shit! How am I going to do this? You know, because it's really tough to play, really difficult music. Yeah, it sounds so beautiful and calm and meditative, but to actually play it is just a bitch. You yeah, know? yeah, and like physically really, or physically, and it's just very exacting, mm-hmm. and it's very um, fragile and. Precarious, and it, it's really easy to embarrass yourself and really make a fool of yourself um, if you just make one wrong move at any moment. There's all these possibilities things will pop out, for and error. if they pop out, yeah, you're just going to look silly, you know. So, it's what, what really do you think, what do you think that does for the music to have
0: performers on, on edge like that?
1: I don't know, um, I don't know, but I've probably lost a few years playing his music <laughs> from the stress of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's fun i mean i i um i remember doing a gig at the um the louvre in paris and uh it was Stephen and i playing that uh this crisscross piece and charles curtis playing oh, wow. um some stuff he's a total master he's amazing and alvin was doing i'm um, sitting in a room and, and we we did the guitar piece and i walked off the stage and it's you know, in the last minute of the piece, I'm always like, One minute to go, you can do this, you can do this. And, right. And I got through it, we got through it, and uh I walked off and and Charles said, Oh, that was that was great and I said, Dude, it's so stressful and then he just put his arm around me and said, That's Alvin, you know. Yeah. And a lot of his music is really it's tough to play. It's almost you gotta be superhuman in a way, you know. Yeah. In, a, in a different way. Right. right then what you know you would perceive as virtuosity or whatever Mm. yeah
0: it's a whole different skill set it is Uh, It is that that sense of patience that sense of it's like tiptoeing through a dark room and there's like sleeping people everywhere and you (laughs) very true yeah yeah
1: yeah we did good last night all of us were really happy with uh the performance and album was really stoked so that was
0: yeah that was good i think that room helps for the sign of bass music
1: it does yeah it's yeah. a beautiful room for, for that kind of thing for sure
0: yeah and then you're in the states for another week or so
1: yeah we're doing um, <coughs> with with Alvin and the ensemble we're doing about five gigs around North America and then I come back to New York to do a duo with Lauren Connors have you played with him before no no that'll be interesting I, yeah yeah I'm a fan yeah he's a legend he's an absolute legend mm-hmm. absolute legend so that'll be interesting alright
0: should we go get some smoke fish? hell yeah <laughs> alright <go> <laughs> thanks man thank you <laughs> Fucking A, man. That was Oren Barchi. Did you guys dig that? That was a good one, man. That was a real good one. Uh, I love Oren's music, and uh, I hope we cross paths again. That was fun. If you want to find out more about Oren Barchi, go to orenmbarchi.com. Check out his label. It's called Black Truffle Records. He's doing a lot of really great music uh, by him himself and a lot of other artists. Check out his bands. Check out his band with um, Steve O'Malley and KG Haino. Check out his band with Jim O'Rourke and KG Haino. Check it all out. It's all good. It's all worth your time. com. Go to the 5049 website. Check out some past episodes. Consider becoming a donor through the Patreon. And uh, that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you next week. Bye.